folks, and welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and today I'm extremely delighted to have a good friend of mine, Stephen Dick, to tell us about many, many things in his life, career, and some exciting new things that he is doing, and welcome to the program. Thank you. What I'd like to look at first, even if we could, is, uh, as I do with most of the guests, start out with where you're from. Uh, early education, later education, and uh, items like that. Well, I was uh, born in Kingsport, Tennessee in 1954. Kingsport at that time was an affluent company town. Uh, the population of Kingsport was 33,000, and East, Eastman Kodak, whom my father worked for, employed 15,000 people. Uh, so it was quite an affluent little town then. Uh, you know, I grew up there and left out of high, when I got out of high school. I do feel like I should mention that my mother and father met in Costa Rica after World War II. Uh, she was from Vancouver, British Columbia, and as I grew up, every other summer we spent the whole summer in British Columbia, not my father, but because he had to work, but my brother and I and my mother. And that was in the days when summer vacations were three months long. So to some, you know, to some degree, I actually felt like I was a Canadian resident uh, to some, to an extent. And that kind of shapes the way you, you look at the world, at the way that you look at your country of origin when you have that much time in another country, which is similar in most ways, but in some ways decidedly different. I think I've always wanted to visit uh, that part of Canada. I've done a lot of Eastern Canada, but I can imagine the, the beauty and the growing up in that different culture. Now, educationally, uh, school and then your college choice and career choice. Okay, um, I went to Kingsport City Schools all 12 years. Um, uh, of course, at that point in my life, I, I didn't really appreciate what a good school system it was. Uh, especially when I got to high school, I was a little negative-minded about that sort of thing. <laughs> but once I got to college, I realized that even though I was a mediocre student in high school, I knew some things that most of my friends in college didn't know. And so I gained some, some appreciation in retrospect. I originally went to East Tennessee University. I had a half scholarship to run track and cross country, but that didn't work out. Um, the coaching was very different and the level of commitment was very different. And so I did not stick with that. And I didn't look to go anywhere else. I just gave up on my running career, which I do regret maybe, but so then I went on to University of Tennessee, and they and you'll never hear me say a bad word about the University of Tennessee. 
I basically attended UT from 1972 to 1989. <laughs> um, I was a professional student, and I have no regrets about that. And I, I worked for a company, Plasma Alliance, which was a, pla a plasmapheresis concern. And I had a good relationship with the manager, and every quarter we would have a talk and decide how many hours I would work that quarter. And the options were basically 20 to 60 hours a week. And because I'd, I could do almost all the jobs there except the medical part, he, he was able to accommodate what I wanted. And it was a lifestyle I thoroughly enjoyed. And that's why I stayed in it for so long. Um, after I, I got my undergraduate degree in English literature, and um, you know, I looked into possibly going for a PhD in English, but uh, I don't like research. Um, at that time, I didn't think as a professor that I could lecture a class as long as you might be expected to, although I found out subsequently that I could have. And there, there's, uh, in a graduate department, there are political, not as in Democratic or Republican, but internal politics that uh, made it less attractive to me. So I decided to switch to seek certification uh, for grades 7 through 12. And um, that, that my master's degree was in English education. It was basically centered on becoming certified to teach those grade levels in the state of Tennessee or elsewhere. Um, the family influences, I, I don't, my family, they were very proud that I was going to college. Uh, no one in my father's family at that time had ever graduated from college. Uh, my mother's was a different, pretty much everybody did. But in terms of guiding me towards a career, rec recommending that I major in this or that, the, the family didn't really have any influence. They're always supportive. My father was an accountant, and he sometimes told me, you, I, you can be anything you want, just don't be an accountant. <laughs> so I didn't. Um, so during the course of working on a master's, um, I ha you had to do, or I was able to do, observations in classrooms, uh, practice lessons, that sort of thing, and the school I was involved with was Knoxville Rural High School, which is no longer there. I did my student teaching there and spent a lot of time over two years there, and the year I student taught was the next to last year of that school. Uh, rural was an inner city school. It was about 50% white and 50% black, but overwhelmingly on the lower socioeconomic end and I love that school. Uh, I felt very appreciated by the students um, and I was just enormously impressed uh, with the staff there and 
you know, by some standards, the way you hear now, uh, that would maybe be a failing school. But it was the most important part of that community. It, it was the, the beacon of bright light to that community. And when it was gone, uh, it was an enormous blow. But I thought it was a great school. I didn't think it was a failing school at all. And my, in terms of, you know, get on to this, you know, I had three classes. Two of them were junior level, one of them was a senior level. And, but, did not have any discipline problems. The issues were that the attendance level was poor in some cases and the motivation was not real good. But so after that period of time, I, I said I want to teach in an inner city high school. And I assumed if you said you wanted to teach in an inner city <laughs> high school, uh, the phone would be ringing constantly. Well, for whatever reason, that did not happen. And as, a, as I neared the end of the summer and still didn't have a job, um, I shifted my focus to taking any job I could get. And I got a call from Jerry Howe, the principal at Athens Junior High, and I came here to teach uh, seventh and eighth grade English and reading. Um, at that time, I had this idea that, well, I've taught in an inner city high school, and um, so I'm not going to have any, any difficulty um, with the classroom management of seventh graders in what I thought was basically May Mayberry at that time. <laughs> Well, it was a rude awakening for because I think for a couple of weeks, other teachers said, you know, you got to start tough. You got to be strong in the beginning and then you can loosen up. But like a lot of teachers, you can't really tell a new teacher or anything. They just got to find out for themselves. And I think the children really were sizing me up for about two weeks. And then excuse me, but all hell broke loose and it was a battle all year long and I learned a lot of lessons, but some of those lessons, uh, you've cre you're in an environment that is not real good. You know, a struggling new teacher with a difficult age of kids and so, um, you know, I lasted out the year the, and I, I told myself when I first got to Athens that this is too small a town for me. I'm going I'm to teach one year and leave. But then, I, whether it was an excuse or a rationale, I thought, well, you need to get tenure before you leave because if you leave the school and you don't have tenure, other schools that you interview with are going to wonder about that. And then my second year was great, the one of the best years I've ever had because I was still very idealistic. Hmm. And uh, the discipline thing, I learned my lessons. I learned them the hard way, but the second year was a whole different story. And so year by year went on. I got tenure. I got more involved in the community. And... 
I kind of forgot about my dream of teaching in an inner city school. Uh, that's Looking back, that sounds funny to say I forgot about my dream, but that's kind of accurate. And so I stayed here for in teaching here for 16 years. I think, <clears throat> Stephen, you would not have enjoyed me as a 7th or 8th grader. I was in trouble constantly, principal's office. I think the only thing that saved me is that I made decent grades. I was not overly disrespectful, but I sure was a behavioral problem. And I could see you bouncing me around and out of there for a number of episodes, but I, too, made it through and went on and did fine. But as you finished up <clears throat> your teaching career, uh, what path were you looking at uh, at that time for further career choices or uh, other things? Your community service has been marvelous. We'll talk about that in a second. But as you were winding down, like a lot of teachers do, what were you thinking for that next step? Well, I taught, and let me add one thing based on what you just said. What I didn't understand is that high school kids don't do a lot of the stupid and silly things junior high kids did. And so the fact that one was an inner city school and one of them was a more mainstream, somewhat rural school, but uh, it was different. And, but after, you, you learn how to, it's hard for another teacher to tell you how to do things because in middle school, junior high, the classroom management is really the most important part as opposed to the knowledge in your subject area. And, um, you know, over the, the next few years, uh, did a lot better on the discipline issue. Um, but, I uh, see now I'm losing my train of thought. In the middle of my career, I absolutely loved it. And, but now we're really jumping ahead. I had a graduate professor who told us that if you're going to go into public education, you need to expect to enjoy it for about 10 years, and then you need to have some other secondary plan after that point. And my reaction when he said that was what a cynical thing to say about a bunch of people who are just about to go into teaching. But in my case, and I suspect many others, he would have been exactly right because after 10 years, um, burnout began to set in. The method of instruction that I used, whole language, which was the rage when I first started teaching, but over time, um, it suffered from what I think were 
inaccurate evaluations. Um, I wish I had time to talk about whole language, but I'll just move on from there. But anyway, whole language did not lend itself to high standardized test scores. And during the course of the, my career, standardized testing as a means of evaluating children and of teachers uh, grew more profound, more invasive, uh, specifically with an English teacher, what I wanted to emphasize were critical thinking and creativity. Well, neither one of those things can be measured on a standardized test, uh, a test with bubbles and four answers for every question. And if you're being evaluated as a teacher, um, on the gains that your students make during the year in which they're they're in your class, then it forces you to some degree to leave what you think is most important to teach to the test. And that's not a black or white issue. I, I'm not saying I or any other teacher went totally to teaching to the test, but it was reality we have to live, had to live with, and um, it took a lot of the joy out of it. it, it I let it take a lot of the joy out of it. And uh, my addiction issues at that time were growing and getting burnout and uh, having chronic insomnia. Um, I just couldn't get it back. I, I couldn't get the enthusiasm back, or I failed to get it back. And, you know, if you get burnt out on your job and you're moving boxes, it really doesn't matter so much. But when you go into a classroom with children and you're wondering, uh, as I did, do the kids know I don't really want to be here anymore? And that was painful. And you know what I tell people now who they ask me, well, you do miss teaching. I say the same thing every time. I miss the kids. I don't miss anything else about it. Nothing. But I do miss the kids. And when I left, um, so I was 50, let's see, how old was I? I was 50 years old and I didn't really have a backup plan. I taught adult ed a little while. But what happened my, where my addiction issues really kicked in is because the day I let, got in a truck for the last time in the junior high parking lot, I was elated. But over time, I realized that not having the kids in my life, it was a whole I didn't know how to feel. Um, and so I filled it with substance abuse. And maybe that's oversimplistic. I'm sure it is a little bit, but I just... I didn't know I didn't know how to value myself without the feeling 
of going into a classroom and being involved in coaching and at the end of the day thinking, well, you did your best you could to help other people. And I didn't know how to replace that. Well, and that's, that's an extremely interesting point. And I think I'd like later, we're certainly not anywhere near finished with this interview, but if you would come back at a point in the future, Stephen, because you and I have talked about this, I can tell our listeners that that uh, he has done a marvelous job uh, with a number of, uh, of addicted men in our community. Uh, once he had gotten recovered, uh, I've been very, very uh, excited to know and, and learn from Stephen a lot of my uh, services to a halfway shelter here that I've done since retirement. It's been a marvelous, marvelous journey uh, for you. And uh, I can go back to certainly what you were talking about as we segue backwards a little with the burnout because uh, as some of you listeners know, my wife taught elementary school, second grade, not the same as middle school, but still uh, burnout issues occur. And I just found out, Stephen, in the last few months from talking to the current educators, uh, and that's interesting, you mentioned the 10-year cycle. Uh, it turns out they've done many surveys lately that have discovered that the average teacher uh, at any level is beginning the burnout cycle at 10 years. And so we're losing a lot of young people who start 22 years of age, by 32, 34, this is starting. Uh, it happens in medicine, folks. I've had two colleagues retire in their mid-50s in the last year. Uh, it's, it's just different. So burnout occurs in a lot of uh, areas, as you listeners will know, but education being the extremely, extremely important profession that it is, uh, and, and there are ways I guess people are looking at it, but it is tough. And so after that time occurred, uh, then some of your community services uh, included uh, the, uh, the Grace House, but there were other things that you were doing, I think, to help uh, youngsters and others individually. Share that with our listeners as well so they can get a concept of, of what a retired teacher does. Okay, um, one quick thing about burnout and the future of public education because when I talk to younger teachers, as Shelley just said, they seem to be getting burned out even faster. And this is well documented, so if you want to Google it, you, I think you'll find it. I won't give you a lecture about it. But in Finland, students go to school about as half as much time as American students do teachers hours are about half as much time testing there is no high stakes testing in Finland and they do not give any homework but the results that they get are better because they consistently when worldwide Countries are evaluated on the effectiveness of their education. Finland is always at the top. And the United States, although certainly better than most, 
is nowhere near the top anymore. And I think that needs to be looked into. What are the differences there? But anyway, after, let's see, I left teaching in 2005. Uh, I taught, I worked in the public library. I uh, taught adult education with adults working to get their GED. I did enjoy that, but the alcoholism was really creeping up on me. And in 2008, you know, I began a very dark two years. Um, in 2010, I quit drinking. It, it had almost killed me three times. I had spent, when I, when I, the last step along that journey was spending six months at Willow Acres in Riceville, Tennessee, which was an assisting living place. Um, I was just I was just worn out mentally, emotionally, and physically with alcoholism, and I stayed there six months. And uh, during that time, I inherited money, which was not all that much, but to me, it might as well have been a billion dollars, and. Uh, one day I'd been suffering from lower back pain, which wasn't real bad, but it was always there except when I lay down to sleep. So a friend offered me an opioid and said, try this and see if it helps. Well, it didn't help the pain at all, but it made me feel very smart, like my IQ jumped up 50 points, and very energetic and I didn't care about the pain. And although my addiction to alcohol took decades to develop, I may as well have been addicted to opioids after that first pill. And that led to a three-year period in which I was addicted to opioids. Um, it didn't really have the health effects that the alcohol did, but I spent at least $150,000 over those three years. And uh, um, it was a diff uh when I ran out of money, I'd spent everything I had. I realized I was not willing to hustle uh, to do the things an addict has to do when he or she uh, can't come up with the money to continue the habit. Over that period of time, I'd been arrested three times. I ended up uh, only serving a total of 100 hours in jail. But if I started talking about it, you'd think it would. I was there for 10 years because I really, really hated it. And I know you're not supposed to like it, but I really, really hated it. And that essentially was what made me quit. And the way I quit, I, has, I wouldn't recommend this because it makes it sound too easy, but I was able to do it. I, at the end there, I was taking 100 milligrams of hydrocodone a day, and I just tapered down over a 20-day 20 20 period. I went nine and a half, nine, 
all the way down to zero, and I never got pill sick. So, uh, at that point, I remember looking in the mirror, and I was in a life care facility here in Athens, and I remember looking in the mirror, I'd been in, in intensive care for four days or so, and then when I got to the assisted living and my head had cleared a little bit, I remember looking in the mirror and just thinking, you cannot do this anymore. It's either going to kill you or it's going to make, excuse me, for the terminology, a vegetable out of me. And essentially, that is the first step in a recovery program is recognizing that you are powerless over your addiction and your life has become unmanageable. And uh, although I wasn't thinking I'm working the first step when I made that decision, in essence, that's what I was doing. And when I finally realized you're going to have to construct a new way of thinking, a new way of living, uh, and then the other 12 steps became very, the other 11 steps became very important in a way they never had before. And I'm not real doctrinaire about the steps, but they have been a import, important uh, part of my recovery. And my recovery group, I basically credit uh, with saving my life. And I think any addict would say this, that uh, my listener may be thinking, well, how many people does it take to save one life? Well, it takes a lot. And... Uh, <clears throat> You know, I'll be forever grateful for that. And that's when I really came to love this community is when, you know, I kind of emerged uh, from addiction and the people who barely knew me, you know, in a small town, I'd always had public jobs, teaching, library, uh, adult ed, and... Most people knew what I'd been through, more or less, and yet I never felt judged. I never felt I was laboring under a stigma. And that's when I, I became, I came to truly love this community and wanted to give back. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time at Grace and Mercy Ministries and with St. Paul's, uh, reaching out to people who, who have food insecurity. And that was very meaningful to me. And, you know, my work in the addiction community, there's a, you know, basically what the 12th SIP says is, to paraphrase it, is to keep what you have, you have to give it away. And so I try to do that as much as I can. And... Uh, you know, I'm sponsoring a guy now, really the, so far, the best relationship I've had with the sponsee, and, but I can say, and I tell him this, I'm not sure he believes me, that you're helping me more than I'm helping you, and I really believe that.
Well, and I think, <clears throat> Stephen, that's just a wonderful, wonderful, you know, history and recap of your scenario that our listeners certainly can can take so much from. And having personally worked with Stephen at uh, our facility and as well with the Table Graces Feeding Ministry, which uh, is another entire story that we can do at another time, uh, giving back, giving back. Uh, I was told early on in my career by a dear mentor of mine uh, that that he needed me uh, early on in my youth as a physician in Athens give back. Uh, it's easy, I think, for so many of us to who have the resources to give back that we don't. And uh, and I've been blessed to to do some of that, and certainly working with wonderful folks like Stephen in these endeavors. It's extremely important, uh, and and I think that uh, what you point out, having that support group, is key. It it really is, to uh, to loving the folks around you and passing that love on. Uh, now, I'm gonna kind of end this interview with a question I ask of a lot of people, and I think I know where you may be coming from on some of this, as we go back into your education career someone walks up to you and says, I want to be a teacher. Uh, basically, what type of advice can you give that young person about seeking a career in education? Well, I've been dreading this question. It's the hardest one to answer. Uh, and I've touched on it already about the 10 years. Uh, there were, out of my 16-year career, I would say there were about 10 where I absolutely loved the job. It, it was uh, so fulfilling. It was so much fun. It was so good to be around the kids. And I'm not saying 10 is a magic number, but I would echo the cautionary words my graduate professor said is keep that in mind uh, because what happens to a lot of teachers is when that burnout sets in and there are ways to keep it from setting in but it's like you got to recognize the disease in its early stages you can't just wait till you're really embedded into it and expect to get that feeling back. But there are ways to avoid it, but I would say be prepared, look look for the signs, because as I said earlier, walking to a into a classroom and wondering where the kids know that you really want to be there anymore, you don't, you don't want to put yourself in that position. But I'm not discouraging young people from being teachers and and I feel at this point, I went to public schools, I taught in public schools, uh, and I think in, in our democracy, in any democracy, a public school education is the best education because in a public school, you're in a situation where there's diversity and you may not learn science and math as well, 
the discipline may not be as good as in parochial or private schools, but I do believe that if I had had children uh, and lived in Knoxville, I would have made sure they went to Knoxville West High School, which at that time is kind of representative of all the diversity in the United States. And a lot of the criticism public schools face is they public schools have to deal with things that private and parochial schools do. Public schools take everybody. Public schools do not have the option of expelling you from school for discipline problems. So if you see it as a competition, it's not a level playing field. And But I will always be loyal to public schools. I think that's well said, and, and I as well, Stephen Wood, not just having been through it myself or having my wife teaching, I have had that strong belief that your overall life education is there, clearly. No no harm, no foul to, to dear friends who have educated their children, you know, in a private setting, but you're absolutely correct. I have just thoroughly enjoyed you being with me today. Promise me you will come back. Oh, I will. I will <laughs> do that. But thanks so much for, Thank for being here. Uh, and folks, if you have any questions, as I always say, please send them to shellgriff at gmail.com, S-H-E-L-G-R-I-F at gmail.com. I can get these back to Stephen, get back with you all with some answers, but uh, he will be coming back in the future for another episode and as I always say to each of you have a safe and healthy day and I'll see you a little further up the road. <music>